Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Talking CX podcast. We are thrilled to have Nicolette Waring back with us to talk more about CX and her part of the world as we continue our CX Around the World series. Graham, is there anything that you'd like to add before we get started back in with our conversation? Yeah, I'm really excited to hear more from Nicolette from the Netherlands, um, our very own CX Wizard Apprentice. Um, and as our listeners know, in the first post podcast, we really focused on kind of universal truths of CX from from Nicolette's very unique perspective. Um, I'm looking forward to discussing more about the difference between CX in the various countries in her Benelux region and then the countries around her. You talked a little bit about the um, area that you're in. Um, I know the area that you've worked in, one of them is called Benelux. Is that the way you say it? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And for people who've never heard that before, what is that area comprised of? It's Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, Benelux. Okay. And you have Benelux and, you know, you've done a lot of work in Germany and other places in continental Europe. And Mm -hmm. I know that you've said, you know, the UK is a different case, but for continental Europe, um, what have you noticed much of a difference in CX and the approach and attitudes of customers and organizations between these different areas? Well, I think that um, now the most important thing to keep in mind is that there are different levels of um, advancement in the different markets. You know, um, if you, you know, you can't compare a market like uh, the Netherlands with uh, a market like Romania or Czech Republic or Poland, although you know the uh, the Eastern European uh, countries are starting to you know pick up gear. Not speaking up obviously of the situation in Ukraine at the moment, but they are advancing very quickly. But you know when you I I've always found that um, you know when I'm working on programs that, are, that go across continental Europe, that it's always very important to involve local people to make sure that whatever aspiration you have for CX, that the local people on the ground are able and enabled to make a translation that fits their local market. So to give you an idea, at one point, you know, we, um, you know, we designed uh, a customer experience program, and the way that that looked in a country like the Netherlands was significantly different from the way it looked in Poland or in Romania. And in Poland, for instance, what they did is they launched, um, you know, a phone number that customers could call twenty four seven, which was really that was game changing in that market at that moment of time. In Romania, they printed something on paper, which was, you know, giving a customer a lot of information. And for that market, it was game changing at that moment in time. So 
on an aspirational level, I think, you know, there are very universal values that are at play. Um, but you you always have to make sure that there's a local translation, uh, uh, that there's space to make a local translation. Okay. Right. Because what you said earlier, that the foundational principle behind all of this is that customers want to be listened to. Yeah. And so what are the differences in how the customer feels listened to from one region to the next? Is that driving some of those um, game-changing moves that were made? Yeah, absolutely. What customers want is quite universal. The, the golden rules of respectfully dealing with customers, treating them fair, uh, things like that. Um, but the tone of voice may differ. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. and even, and also the way, so the channels you use um, and uh, the way you interact with customers, that may differ. So in, in some markets, um, you know, take for instance the Netherlands, you know, um, self-service is very advanced here. Um, so customers are really used to, you know, doing most of the things themselves. And they're like, what do you mean I need to call customer service? I want to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, other markets, um, you know, customers uh, want to talk to a human being, you know, even to the simplest tasks to be executed. But then it can also vary with age groups. Um, I'll never forget with, um, you know, uh, a big home shopping channel organization in uh, in Europe, and especially the German market, you know, their uh, the majority of their customers at the time was uh, ladies of you know seventy years and older, um, and with a lot of disposable income. Um, and even if they would have been willing to use self service. You know, this was actually their, um, you know, this was so a social event for them. You know, just the possibility to have a chat with a customer service rep for 45 minutes, you know, took away some of their loneliness. Are you willing to do that for, you know, jewelry of around 3,000 euro? Why not? I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it, you have to gear it also to the customer segments that you're talking to. So they actually base their customer service around planning to have conversations with people that are older yeah. to meet that need. That's, yeah. that's I, I haven't heard of that before. Well, it's part of your, uh, how you build your, uh, your business case. Yeah, and in the financial, I mean, I've, I've, I'm, I've been, I'm working with uh, a lot of uh, startups, fintechs here in, on the continent um, and, um, you know, even with young people, when their money is involved, you know, you can be a fintech and have everything, you know, all your systems in place, your uh, data intelligence in place. But, you know, if it's about your money, sometimes you really want to talk to a real human being. So you better cater for that. Oh, Absolutely. And, and with leadership, is that a hard case to make? Because that's quite the opposite of efficiency in, you know, in the way that you would normally think of a KPI. 
Yes, so often it's, you know, <laughs> they need to adjust their um, uh, their numbers and their business cases um, when they ask me to look at their operating model. So uh, oftentimes they really haven't haven't really factored it in um, and you know, it's, it's really by questioning them about okay what kind of customers what exactly are you doing I mean one of the things that strikes me is that you have KYC so know your customer and the AML processes anti, uh, anti-money laundering um, and uh, you know what, what uh, they and there's there's um, you know there these processes are heavily uh, regulated, so you have to comply with um, regulators there, the rules that they set for these things. Um, and there they often haven't got the processes automated to a level where you should automate them. So eating away from, um, you know, from their finances. Uh, so usually I, I sit down with them and say, okay, let's have a look at how we can Make those processes more efficient, and then you know, so that you have, that you have more time to um, to give customers that one-on-one attention that they crave. Because uh, you know, a know your customer in an AML process, uh, anti-money laundering process, are a nuisance for a customer. They don't care, you know. But you have to have those ducks in a row. So it's 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 also shifting attention from uh, uh, you know from the customer interactions to those processes. Uh, so that's shifting around funds. I, I think in addition in addition to that, I mean, kind of directly what you're saying, Nicolette, I mean, you think of, when people think of ef- efficiency, it's the efficiency and effectiveness balance. Yeah. And then, you know, companies spend an inordinate amount of time um, measuring the efficiency of an interaction or even a channel, like a contact center. Yeah. What they spend less time doing is measuring both the efficiency and effectiveness balance on a journey. Yeah. And then I, I always love, you know, I've been involved over the years in many customer lifetime value studies <laughs> and people, organizations rarely do customer lifetime ROI, yeah. customer lifetime cost against value. Yeah. And that's usually because it's so hard for them to deal with these multiple stages. I mean, you talk about the you know, they're the making all the customers feel better. We've done business with a number of um, pharmaceutical life sciences and healthcare provider organizations. And, and especially as they deal with older people, they're, they're dealing with a situation where the interaction with the healthcare professional is often the, the only interaction that that person has yeah. with another adult over a period of time. And that, you know, in order to actually make their processes efficient, mm-hmm. they have to deal with the personal thing and the relationship thing with that particular customer or patient, because if they don't deal with that, it eventually kind of feeds its way into inefficiency in the process. So it's, you know, it's that it's that it's not about the interaction; it's about the journey, and it's probably about the multiple journeys in your relationship with that customer. Yeah, and and that also goes to cost to serve, because like you say, you know, I have yet to meet the first co- company that says, "Oh yeah, customer lifetime." Uh, value, we are able to calculate it, we track it and things like that. And the same goes for cost to serve. Because cost to serve, you know, often, you know, it's you a company's only look at the customer service part. But that's not your cost to serve. So your cost to serve is really something that you also need to look at um, throughout the whole customer journey. 
And once you once you start to understand that, then you also start to understand of okay, we are actually spending an inundated amount of money, you know, on steps in the process that you know are really a nuisance for the customer and don't give them that great customer experience that you want them to have. Oh. Well. I'd like to go back to, I, I think the example that you gave of the um, of the older ladies <laughs> ladies who really appreciate, yeah, right, yeah, the, the older ladies who really appreciate people taking more time and talking to them in detail about issues is a really great look at a demographic that, you know, it, it may be true, in other places, but maybe it hasn't been addressed that well in other places. And do you have examples of other demographics in your area that, you know, have these specific needs that we may not have heard about? For me, the key trend around customer experience is that customers more and more demand you to be personal and relevant once they take the step to reach out to you through a direct contact channel. So I think on the one mm-hmm. hand, there's convenience. So make it easy to do business with you, like the you know typical customer effort score. And on the other hand, you know, once I reach out to you, let me talk to a human being not to somebody who sort of goes through the moves and reads um, of a script, but doesn't really connect with me, uh, listen to me um, Mm -hmm. and um, solve my problem. Because once I do reach out to you, I obviously haven't been able to solve it myself. uh, Right. So I really need help. You know, don't give me the cookie cutter answers because they're useless. And, you know, annoy a customer once or twice like that. The third time, you're gone. Now they switch to another provider. Speaking from personal experience, I can absolutely attest to that. And I think it's a universal mm-hmm. thing, yeah. right? There is nothing worse with customer support than calling them and... <laughs> realizing that they are reading from a script. (laughs) (laughs) They have no power to solve your problem whatsoever. And it's not their fault, right? It is just the way that, that they've, that the system that they're operating in. Exactly. That's, that's, they're just executing the tasks that they're, they're being told to execute. And I think another thing that is really annoying customers is uh, NPS uh, questionnaires. And especially the ones, it, this is really interesting. Um, Reichel published the successor of his uh, uh, book, The Ultimate Question, last December. And the reason why he wrote it is because he got fed up with companies abusing NPS for the wrong reasons. And um, an example that he uses in that, you know, this is universal as well. You go to your car dealership and, um, you know, when everything is done, the person at the car dealership asks you, okay, you're going to get a questionnaire. Can you please give me a 10? And it's like, oh, my God, poor you. 
<laughs> oh, part of your payment depends on me giving you a 10. And this this is exactly, wow. but this has nothing to do with customer advocacy or net promoter score. And the customers are getting so fed up with it. And the fact that in 2022, we're still sending out questionnaires to customers. Are you kidding me? We've got a lot of data. And if we mine those data correctly, um, and if we have set our you know, ICT architecture in a clever way, we do not need to ask customers all these questions. We don't need to bother them. And and customer consumers are really, you know, at a threshold of, you know, I don't want to answer these anymore. And they're right. So in that oversaturation. Exactly. But yeah. With yeah. Emails. So you can have a yeah. great customer experience and then you send out the NPS survey every time. Don't. Because you're ruining the, the great customer experience that you may have uh, created just before that. That's, I think that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> it'll make a lot of, um, it'll make a certain data-driven, CX-oriented companies maybe not happy to hear that. But yeah, I think that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, be more clever about it than having to send out, you know, uh, an old-fashioned questionnaire. Yeah, the, the the customer support person could kind of get that information at the end of their conversation. Actually. They could, but they're in a way, in a, in a more subtle yeah. There's way, a lot to be said right? about that, but you know, you can track customers' behavior online. Um, you can. Uh -huh. You have your voice recordings or the chat recordings, quote unquote. You know, you can have natural language um, analysis being done on all of those things. You, you don't need to ask, bother the customer with a questionnaire anymore. I don't know what you think about that, Graham, but. Well, I, th I think it's, I think it's, um, I have a slight, I mean, slightly different view. I agree with you, by the way, that companies are not leveraging all the capabilities that could be in place. Um, first and foremost, it's like going for the simple thing. I mean, we do a lot of work with organizations that are, you know, trying to trying to either launch, which is interesting in 2022, or or, or optimize their VOC processes. I think mm -hmm. what what a lot of organizations miss is making those surveys more personal and intelligent so yeah i think what well, i mean my, my favorite one is you know when i get a when i get a survey from an organization i've been doing business with for a long time who make it really clear in the survey that they have no idea who i am yeah. and so and and barely recognize that i you know that i've just engaged with them in a specific interaction except to say you know you you just called us about a problem with your flight reservation but they don't they could be piling so much more intelligence and personalization into exactly. that message, which would, would make me much more likely a, to give feedback because, you know, the feedback is important. And then the other side of that, back to your point about, um, you know, service reps, for example, who take ownership of a problem and give feedback. Um, my favorite one and something we talk about all the time is if you don't ever ask a customer for their feedback, if you're going to make it really apparent to them that you did absolutely nothing with it. So you yeah. know, if, if you keep pounding away, you know, it's like it's like regular email surveys. And I think Fred talks yeah. about this, which is, you know, 
give me give me a comment right what we call a verbatim on the inside out view give me a comment and you sent seven oh my god i wish i wish i wish i wish and they just keep doing the same thing and you're like you know could you get rid of the box because if you don't want to know then don't put a box there. don't bother me i'll yeah, be much exactly. happier and the more loyal a customer you are the more angry those things makes you so the people who don't care about you customers who don't care about you are kind of not really affected by that because they don't care about you it's the really yeah. loyal customers that you're eventually you know causing to move off to other providers and i think the idea to your point which is that you know as we as we said in a presentation we did a few weeks ago you know it's it's not your grandmother's voc anymore right mm -hmm. 2015 voc voice of customer surveying is very very different to 2022 and and by 2025 and 26 it's just going to continue with the evolution of you know, natural language processing and artificial intelligence yeah, and the exactly. ability to do it. So I think companies thinking more deeply about that is is definitely an opportunity. Well, and also ask yourself, why am I doing this? Because if it's only to feed back into the bonuses of certain people in the organization, wrong. You know, if it's, I, I always say, you know, for me, I always use customer satisfaction, uh, you know, research or intelligent mining of the data um, and customer advocacy. But for me, it's much more. I want to have a thermometer in my operation. So I, I want not only me, but also the people in the front line to know, you know, what are the things that we're doing that are making a positive difference and where do we need to become better? So I, I always feed that back, you know, even on a weekly basis to my people in the front line. And they have a weekly stand-up where they look at, so what did the customers we served think of us last week? So what do we learn from that? And what are our focal points going to be for this week? And then a week later, they can actually see, did this move the needle or not? You know, and then you actually make it fun. So it's not a KPI that they get beaten around the hat with. No, it's it's something that becomes fun because everybody wants to do better. And everybody likes to hear from customers, you're doing an awesome job. I would love to hear um, if you have other experiences, interactions that you've had with customers or leadership that really left a, an impression on you to really drive some of the innovations that you're sharing with co companies? Well, I think... I'm sorry, I'm thinking. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I can hear the wheels turning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we should have, well, we need a sound effect, something like, you know, gears gears turning. Yeah, exactly. Steam, steam, steam train would be particularly modern, right? Chuff, 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 chuff. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I have to look for that. No, but I think that, um, you know, they're, they're, as the person re often responsible for a customer service, you know, I find myself, you know, between different worlds. So you have the world of the marketeers and you have the world of the more, you know, right brainers. So, uh, you know, a chief operations officer, um, you know, finance, things like that. 
Um, and a marketeer sort of, you know, speaks the language um, and, you know, finds customer experience really important because they know they need it for their competitive advantage in the market and for the reputation of the brand. Um, but the CFO and the COO, um, you know, they often go like, well, you know, that that's just going to cost money. Um, and what's really interesting is that, you know, it's the contrary. Because, you know, if you give your customers a great customer experience, then uh, your operation ends up costing less money. The thing, however, and that takes us back to it's not the next trick in the trade. Um, it takes time. You know, it, it usually does require a transformational process in the organization. Now, so I, I, I always have to say to the marketeers, you know, hold your horses. Don't think that this is something that you can claim within the next quarter because it's not. And the salespeople, it's the same. Um, you know, this is going to take time because, you know, we come from a situation where we really have some uh, miles to cover be before it's credible for A, our employees and B, our customers that we can deliver this. And I think that, you know, generally speaking, I've, I've had several instances in, in different organizations um, where the left brain <laughs> people uh, on the on this equation um, you know came to me half a year into the transformation and one even one and a half years into the transformation where they said to me you know the first six months I've been looking at you and listening to you thinking you were really crazy um, but now I get it the quarter has dropped and then you know all I have to say is thank you for giving me your trust and giving me some time. And I think that that is really important. And I think another one that was really, you know, the there was a situation where the reputation was really, really bad. And it took us more than two years to turn it around from worst in class to award-winning best in class. And I worked for corporate and I had, you know, colleagues from all over the world. And uh, some of them were living in Amsterdam. And two years down the road, they came to me and said, you know, Nicolette, I had never expected that I would freely um, have been uh, walking around with uh, clothes with the company logo on them in Amsterdam. Because two years ago, I would have been uh, butchered by people on the street because of our bad reputation. Wow. And now I walk around with our logo on my clothes with pride. And that is really what we're talking about. That's amazing. It is. It is. And it was, it really felt like a huge compliment. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's also people in the front line. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I was also approached by um, a multinational organization to, you know, help them with the transformation to become customer centric. And um, you know, what I often find 
in a situation like that um, is what I found there as well. 3,000 people working in the front line with, a, you know, their shoulders hanging and the feeling, I don't matter and what I do doesn't matter. Now, customer service usually is at least 50% of the headcount in a company like that. Um, so can you imagine what it does to your company when half of your workforce walks around unengaged thinking I don't matter and what I do doesn't matter. And to me, actually, the biggest bonus I can get, and every time, again, it's it's like a miracle, but I know it's not, but it still is. Um, you know, after a year um, to actually have people come to me and, you know, when I walk into the contact center, I just see and feel a different energy and they're walking around people who feel proud of what they do and who feel that they matter and what they do matters, you know, and, and that really is, you know, once you see that happening, you know that you're on the right track. That's that's inspiring, Nicola. Thank, Thank you, you for sharing that. <laughs> that's what it's all about. It is. I mean, you just described that's exactly what CX should be. Exactly. And to be quite honest, Robin, there is no financial bonus ever that can compete with that for me. Absolutely. No shares, no SARS, no nothing. Wow. That's, that's absolutely inspiring. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that that's a great place to um, wind down the conversation. And, you know, I really appreciate everything you've said, and especially this last part. That's, that's awesome. Well, thank you for allowing to sh me to share my passion with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and so be before we um, end the conversation, we have this little thing that we ask everybody at the end. And mm -hmm. what we ask is, you know, we love to hear what everyone's favorite local cuisine is that they would recommend to anyone who hasn't actually experienced that local cuisine. So um, what's yours? Well, a typical Dutch dish is croquetten. <laughs> what? Croquetten. Croquetten. <laughs> yeah. Croquetten. <laughs> it's deep fried ragu uh, in a crust. And it's it's so popular in the Netherlands that even McDonald's has made a local version called McCrocket. Oh, McCrocket. <laughs> yes, McCrocket. It's Dutch fast food. <laughs> ragu. Um, ragu, like, yeah. Like a veal ragu uh, in a crust, in a oh crunchy crust, and then deep fried. Wow. Okay. Uh -huh. and, and at social drinks, we often serve a one-bite version, which is called bitterballen. Oh. <laughs> so just like a, a one-bite to have with the, with the wine. Well, you have to be careful because they're usually served really, really hot. So the trick is you bite a small piece of the crust and then blow it to cool down the ragu a little and then eat the rest. Otherwise, you're, you'll burn your mouth. 
this, this might be the this might be the first time we've had somebody who has a has a local food that requires instructions. This yeah. is like a public service <laughs> announcement, actually. <laughs> For anyone traveling to the Netherlands, Groketten <laughs> or bitterballen. <laughs> yeah. Do do not do not do this at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they're very nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Approach with caution. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nicolette. With pleasure. Well, that was our conversation with Nicolette. I was so happy that she was a guest here. As she said, she comes with a bit of a reputation, and that reputation is something that I personally enjoyed when I was talking to her. She had a lot of really great stories. Yeah, and uh, and and that reputation includes her attempt to single-handedly blow up the NPS questionnaire industry, which is a bold move. Um, and oh, I, uh, I knew you would love that one. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for her position on that. So uh, as, as we talked about... Um, you know, a lot to consume, a lot to consume in that and a lot of great insights from Nicolette. Um, talking about consuming, um, our listeners shouldn't forget her great little book, Customer Advocacy, that I've been uh, buying and handing out to people for about 10 years. And then uh, and then finally talking about consuming, um, what a great uh, great description of croquetten and bitterballen, which we should all go out and uh, celebrate this podcast with, with some wine and beer. And, and if you actually... Uh, try that out and make it for yourself, Graham. You're going to have to come back and tell us how it went. Yeah, we'll we'll spell it. We'll spell it on the website, and then people can can use good old Google to get the recipes. Well, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. If you have feedback, or you know someone from a different country in some part of the world who would like to discuss CX with us, please contact us through our website and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. And until next time, remember, do CX right. Do it right now. <laughs>